Welcome back to another episode of The Shadows of Jesus. Got some bad news. The bad news is I'm riding solo today. I will find a co-host for next week, but you got me solo. Sorry, but we've got some good stuff to talk about. Today, we're covering a lot. I mean, we're covering Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. And you might be wondering, why? What are we doing? But remember, the purpose of this podcast, uh, it's one, to show how Jesus is throughout all of Scripture, um, from the Old Testament to the New, from Genesis to Revelation. But it's also going along with our reading through the Bible in a year plan. And so when you read through the Bible in a year, you're aiming more for quantity um, than quality. So you're not as able to go as as in depth as might you might like, but you're you're getting a ton of information, um, and you're covering more ground. Next year, we're going to slow it down. We're going to go more for quality than quantity, and and we'll probably see just a an every other year type rotation. One year we'll just go through the whole Bible again. The next year we'll dive into a couple of books in more depth. But the reason why we're covering Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians is because. We're going through the whole Bible this year, and we've got to cover all of those in one week. All right, so let's start off with Galatians. All right, so this letter, it's addressed to a group of churches in Galatia, which is a region in modern-day Turkey. Paul had already preached the gospel in these churches, but some people who came in after him started teaching these churches that if they wanted to be accepted by God, then they needed to follow the laws of Judaism. And this is what Paul is going after in this letter. And you actually hear some pretty harsh language. But if I was to break Galatians up, I would do it in three parts. Chapters one and two, Paul is really defending his apostolic authority. Um, and, And so basically he's building a case for why people should trust or believe what he says as opposed to these other teachers. So in chapters one and two, he's building credibility. In chapters three and four, he really drives home the point that we are saved by grace through faith, and nothing else. And so you could say that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he shows us how this salvation, this salvation which is by grace through faith, leads to Christian freedom, which we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a second. So the central theme of the whole book, you can make a case that it's chapter 2, verse 16 which says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. All right, so that word justified, pretty important word in the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters and the things that he writes about. And I've heard it said, if you can't explain something simply, you don't understand it well enough. And I want to make sure that we know what it means to be justified. So what does that mean? Well, the word justification, it literally means to be declared righteous or for God to say, you are in a right relationship with me. There's no sin that stands between us. So because of our sin, we are not in right standing with God, which means when we are justified, 
there's a position change. Our position before God changes from him declaring us to be sinners to him now declaring us to be saints. And so how does that happen? Like how how does how does our position change before God? How do we go from standing before him as sinners to standing before him as saints? Does he just wave a magic wand and things change? No. All right, for our position to change, the penalty of our sin must be removed. And that's the major question Paul is dealing with. What removes the penalty of our sin? Is it our obedience to the law or is it Jesus's obedience on our behalf? Is it through what we can do or is it through what Jesus has done? And his answer in Galatians is that we are justified through faith, through faith in Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Through that, the penalty of our sin has been removed and therefore our position before God has been changed. So if you want to just a simple answer to the question, what does justification mean? What does it mean to be justified? It means that the penalty of our sin has been removed, and therefore our position before God has changed. It's changed from standing before him as sinners to now we stand before him as saints. So if someone says, how do you know you're right with God? Right? How, how often do you hear that? Like, I got to get right with God. Um, I, I guess I don't hear that very often. Anyways, <laughs> if, if that was a common thing, the answer is found in Galatians 2.20. If someone says, how do you know you're right with God? Paul would say, because I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you're a Bible underliner, underline that verse. If I had a life verse, if there's like just, Jeff, what's your what's your life verse? It would be Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All right, well, in chapter three, Paul defends this thesis that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Um, he defends it by showing how this has been the experience of Christians in the churches in Galatia. But he also shows us that this is the experience throughout the whole Old Testament. We see this in Leviticus. We see this in Deuteronomy. Um, specifically, he shows this is how Father Abraham was saved. I mean, think about it. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you. Let's just praise the Lord, right arm. If I had this on camera, you would see me dancing. But like Father Abraham, I mean, he was saved, not by keeping the law because the law wasn't written for another 430 years. He was saved through faith. And so have all other believers in the Old Testament been saved by faith. So <clears throat> if someone asked the question, like, well, if, if we're saved through Jesus, through, through who he is and what he has done through his life, death, and resurrection, we know Jesus. Well, how are people in the Old Testament saved? Were they saved by keeping the law and then things changed? Was there like a, a plan A, a plan B? It's like, no, 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 no. There's always been one plan and the plan has always been Jesus. People in the Old Testament were saved through faith in a Savior to come. They did not know that his name would be Jesus, but we are saved through the Savior who came, and we get the benefit of knowing his name is Jesus. But Old Testament and New Testament, both alike, salvation comes through faith and faith alone. Well, at the end of chapter 3, 
and into chapter four, Paul begins to deal with the question, like, well, why the Old Testament law? I mean, if the law couldn't save us, then why did God ever give it to us in the first place? I mean, it seems like that was just a, an unnecessary step. I mean, if it wasn't good, why was it there in the first place? And so we got to deal with that question. And so what he says is like, well, on one hand, God gave us the law to expose us. That when we look at the law and, and see how we add up to it, it reveals our sinfulness. And it shows us that we are in desperate need for a Savior. But on the other hand, it's like a guardian, providing healthy boundaries to protect us from doing sinful things that have harsh consequences. And so when you break God's law, there are consequences. And so when you know God's law, even if it can't save you, obeying it does prevent you from going through hard times that result as the consequences from sinful actions, right? But what we have to understand, and Paul wants to drive this home, the Old Testament law was never meant to be permanent. Now that Jesus has come, he would say that the Old Testament law is actually no longer needed. All right, and so as we get into chapter four, it seems like Paul is anticipating people saying, okay, we're saved by faith. I'm okay with that. I'm on board with that. But like after we're saved, so once we give our life to Christ, like it's we're saved by grace through faith, but after we give our life to Christ, shouldn't we then go back to the law? I mean, doesn't the law show us like a way to live that leads to human flourishing. And, and so why don't we just say we're saved by faith, but then go back and try to keep the commandments and keep the festivals and do all the stuff that the Old Testament law does? I mean, like, shouldn't we go back to it if that's how God wanted us to live in the past? Doesn't that mean that's how God wants us to live in the now? And to this, Paul would say, no. Like, look, we, we've been set free from its requirements. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more. There's nothing we have done or could do that'll make God love us less. The gospel says that we are fully forgiven and forever loved because of Jesus, and nothing can ever change that. And so as you hear that, you might think, well, then does this mean I can do whatever I want with whoever I want, whenever I want? I mean, if nothing I can do will make God love me less, then why don't I just go live in sin? Why don't I go just do all the things that other people are doing? And Paul would, would look at this mindset and say, no, 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 walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, when you give your life to Jesus, God gives you the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then the Holy Spirit is going to live through you, which means your life is going to change. We're going to, to start living differently, not because we have to, but because we want to. And as the letter wraps up in chapter six, it becomes clear that, that God does care about the way we live our lives, not as a way to earn his love, but as a response to his love. And as we live in the spirit, we're, we're going to fall. We're going to mess up. And so when people fall, what he says is we should help them up because who knows, tomorrow we might be the ones who need a helping hand. And, and so he says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to, do, to those who are of the household of faith. All right, Galatians is an awesome, awesome book and there's so much in there. So make sure you, you read it and, um, and maybe come back to it. Um, like I said, when we go for more quantity um, or more quality over quantity, Galatians would be a great book to dive deeper into. All right, well, let's get into Ephesians. Ephesians breaks up into two main parts. Chapters one through three focus on what Christians should believe. And then chapters four through six explain the implications of God's grace for different areas of our lives. 
So chapters one through three. Chapter one begins with a poem, thanking God for all he's done through Christ. And then it moves to a prayer for this church, not just to know about Jesus, but to truly experience Jesus. I love this prayer. I often pray this prayer over Redeemer. Then in chapter two, I would say this is a huge chapter. I mean, this is a huge chapter for me personally when it comes to my understanding of salvation. Verses one through three tell us the bad news. Like, so if the gospel, that word literally means good news, like, well, it's only good news if you understand the bad news. And the bad news is that before Christ, we were spiritually dead and deserving of God's wrath. And when you think about being dead, that means you're not just drowning and you need someone to throw you a life preserver. You're lifeless. So if someone throws you a rope, you're not grabbing hold of it to pull yourself up because you're not even breathing. But the good news, right? The good news is that in our spiritual death, it says, God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Then he says this, by grace, you have been saved. Not by your efforts to pull yourself up, not by a helping hand, but by grace alone. And then he continues in in chapter two, verses eight and nine. He says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This means we contribute nothing to our salvation. It's the work of God's grace from start to finish. And knowing God's grace changes everything, which is what sparks Paul's prayer in chapter three. So he has this awesome prayer in chapter one. He has another awesome prayer in chapter three. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I mean, I love, I love that prayer. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then in chapters four and six, that's the the first half, chapters one through three, second half, chapters four through six, Paul kind of shifts gears, right? And he begins to challenge his readers to respond to God's grace through the way that we live our lives. Uh, I want to say this again. God does care about the way we live our lives. He doesn't want us to change the way we live in an effort to earn salvation um, or to earn his love. But because his love is freely given, the, the hope is that his love flowing into us will change what flows out of us. And so our, our lives should change, not as a mean to God's acceptance, but as a response to God's acceptance. All right? And so he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been 
called. And so his first challenge, it's for the church. Jesus wants the church to be united, not divided. But unity doesn't mean uniformity. So just like in 1 Corinthians 12, we see that everyone in the church is given unique gifts to help build each other up. And when we're all working together with our unique gifts, our unique passions, what happens is the whole church gets better. The whole church gets stronger. Chapter 5, we're told to be imitators of God as beloved children, and to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so that that idea of being an imitator of God, it means that we are to live our lives in such a way that we demonstrate who God is and how God loves to the watching world. And so so our lives are are a gospel message in, in, in and of themselves. Like we, we preach the good news of who God is and how he loves through the way that we live our lives. And so what we see is through the power of the Holy Spirit um, that, so sorry, the, the question is like, well, how do we do that? Like, well, how do we live out the gospel? How do we, how do we live in response? How do we show the world who God is and how he loves? And, and the answer to that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Like you, you can't do that unless the Holy Spirit is in you. So verse 18 says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the illustration here is that it's impossible to consume enough alcohol in one sitting to live in a continual state of drunkenness. And in the same way, you would need to continually drink, in the same way that you would continually need to drink wine to stay drunk, um, if you want to live in a continual state of spirit-filledness, then you need to continually seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? And so, so that's kind of this, this mystery we live within, that on one hand, we know that at conversion, we're given the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're all filled up, but then on the other hand, we're commanded to continually seek to be, to be filled with the Holy Spirit at the same time. So like, how are you filled with something you're already full of? It's just a mystery that we live within, but we know we are meant to seek out this, this Spirit-filledness, which empowers us to live our lives in such a way that it shows the world who God is and how He loves. So what do you do if you want to tap into that that power of the spirit? Right? Like if you're like Jeff, I want to be more spirit-filled. Jeff, I want to have the power of the spirit not just in me but flowing through me into the world that we're living. Like do you do you, do you ever feel like maybe you're drained? Your battery's running low, your spiritual battery and you're like I want to be filled up. I want to be charged up. I want to be ready to to run and go and to do awesome things. Like I want to live for Jesus. How do I get more of that holy spirit? And so you might think you need to go to a conference. You might think that you need to have someone lay hands on you. You might think that you need to have an intense spiritual experience or that you need to read some books on on the spiritual gifts. And I'm not saying that that stuff is bad. I mean, it could go bad, but it's not necessarily bad. But I believe the vast majority of Christians who aren't experiencing the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, they're missing out because they're grieving the Holy Spirit. And if they do the work to ungrieve the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit would be unleashed in their lives in an incredible way. I mean, listen listen to chapter four, verses 30 through 32. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I want you to think about this. You were given the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon conversion, but are you like putting a throttle, like are you governing him? 
Like if you, if you have a, a, a go-kart and it, maybe it has all this power that you could unleash it in, but your parents put a governor on it. I'm, th- I'm talking about as a kid, not as an adult. And you're like, man, if you could take that governor off, but the, they put a governor on it to keep it from going fast. It limits the speed. Like maybe the Holy Spirit in you has a, a governor on, on him where he's not able to be unleashed as he desires to be unleashed because you're doing something to restrain him, to grieve him. So when you think about this, in verses 30 through 32 of chapter four, when you hold on to bitterness, when you live in anger, when you talk bad about people, when you refuse to forgive someone who's wronged you, you're grieving the Holy Spirit, which means you're keeping him from living through you as he longs to live. So when I say do the work of, of walking repentance, it's it's searching your heart. It, if you want to tap into more of the Holy Spirit, do the work of searching your heart, confessing your sin, and treating others like Christ has treated you. But as we get into chapter six, we're told to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because as we seek to imitate God or to show the world who God is and how he loves, Satan is going to do everything in his power to stop us. And so this is really important for us to understand. that this there, There's one reality, God's reality, excuse me, but there are two realms. There's the physical realm we're in, which we can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear, but there's also a spiritual realm, which is just as real, and we need to be aware of it, which means we need to operate in the power of the Holy Spirit to live in this world as Jesus wants us to live because Satan's going to do everything he can to stop us from it. All right, well, then we get into Philippians. All right, so so we've covered a lot here, but Paul begins this letter with thanksgiving and prayer, saying, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And you can tell from the very get-go that this is a church he loves. Um, You know, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all of these are written from prison. And so you'd think that when Paul writes from prison, he'd be super bummed. But when he writes to, to, to the church in Philippi, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Like, I think this is crazy. He's, he's sitting there in prison and he's like, hey, what's going on here? I mean, th- this dark dungeon I'm in, I want you to know that it's, it's actually serving a purpose in God's hands to advance the gospel. And that word advance, it means to pioneer. When I think about Pioneer, I can't help but think of Oregon Trail. You're, you're going somewhere um, where no one has gone before. And so, so the gospel is pioneering to new places because of his imprisonment. At this point, no one has been able to share the gospel with the imperial guards. But Paul, because he's a prisoner, is literally chained to these dudes throughout the day in shifts. And so as they're chained to him, they can't go anywhere. They're stuck with him. And so guess what he's doing? He's sharing the gospel. And as this is happening, the guards are getting converted and they're going and sharing their faith. And so all of a sudden the the gospel is penetrating, um, penetrating parts of the Roman empire that it's never been able to get into. And like, so is this prison pleasant? No. Like, I'm not saying that Paul's like, I love it here. But in verse 21, he says, for, for to me to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. Which means if, if, we, if he gets out of prison, he's going to go tell people about Jesus. And if he dies in prison, then he's going to go be with Jesus. Option two is best for him, but option one is best for them. And, and he's like, I'm good with either one. So in chapter two, Paul calls the Philippians to be united in love and humility. And when they do this, they're going to shine like lights in the world or, or like stars in the sky because they're reflecting Jesus into the world they're in. Well, in chapter three, Paul tells them to look out for false teachers specifically those who who tell the Philippians to revert back to Judaism, kind of the same thing that's happening in Galatia is happening here. He basically says, look, people are going to try to tell you that your worth is in your ability to obey the law. But if anyone has reason to boast or to find worth in what they bring to the table, it's me. I mean, think about it. Besides Jesus, Paul is basically the best Jew you could ever meet. Um, he doesn't say that, but he has crazy credentials. And when and with one of the most impressive resumes you could imagine, he says all that stuff, all that stuff, all my education, all my learning, all my training, all my all my accolades, it's worthless compared to knowing Jesus. You see, your worth isn't found in what people see or what others say. It's found in what God sees and what God says. And if your faith is in Christ, he sees you like Jesus, and that's better than anything you could ever achieve on your own. Then chapter four wraps up with some verses. Um, I think I probably need to read these verses every day, right? But listen to this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. All right. But the big thing for me, as I've been reading through these three letters this week, is how the gospel has saved us, how the gospel is saving us, and how the gospel will save us. So these are these are just some important theological terms to understand. So, so theologically, we call that reality of how the gospel has saved, is saving, and will save. We call that justification sanctification, and glorification. Okay, so so justification, what is that? Well, we, we already talked about it. It's the penalty of sin has been removed. Therefore, our position before God has been changed, right? And so what we see is, is how are we justified? And, and so, or how are we saved by grace through faith? Um, we see that expressed in Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. So, so all these show that we are justified or we are saved, not through what we can do, not through our obedience, but through Jesus's obedience on our behalf. And so when our faith is in his work, not ours, we become justified. The penalty of our sin is removed. Our position before God changes. That leads to how the gospel is saving us, which is known as sanctification. In sanctification, 
the power of sin has been removed from your life. So it, it no longer controls you. You are no longer in prison to it. You no, you were no longer enslaved to it. You don't have to listen to it because it's not your master, right? And so as, as we look at sanctification, what we see specifically in Galatians is, is this lead to the fruit of the Spirit um, coming out of us. It's not fruits, plural, it's fruit singular, because um, as we live in the Spirit, these things grow together. Um, in Ephesians, Paul talks about this in the terms of, of putting on Christ. It's like taking off your old clothes and putting on new clothes. And then in Philippians, I love it, in chapter 3, um, Paul describes it as this striving towards Christ-likeness, right? So you have justification, the, the penalty of sin is removed. Um, your position changes. Sanctification, the power of sin is removed. Therefore, you can now live or pursue Christ's likeness. And then glorification. This is what happens when not only is the penalty of sin removed, not only is the power of sin removed, but the presence and possibility of sin is removed. So that doesn't happen until Christ returns. That doesn't happen until heaven and earth unite. But when heaven and earth unite... Right. What happens is that the power, the penalty, the presence, and the possibility of sin have been completely removed. And so I see that expressed in, in Philippians. So, so think about Philippians. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, show us what Jesus is like. I mean, that's an incredible poem. Read it, meditate on it. Then in chapter 3, Paul says, if our faith is in Christ, then that's how God sees us. He sees us like Jesus from chapter 2, verses 6 to 11. And after that, in verses 12 through 21, Paul says, I want to give every ounce of my life to becoming the person God has already declared me to be. Or I want to give everything I have to becoming like Jesus. And this is what that means. He would say that is what it, he would say that is what it means to work out our salvation. And so the good news in all of this is found in Paul's opening prayer in Philippians, that God, who began a good work in us, is going to bring it to completion. That's what it means. That, that's what glorification is. Glorification is the moment that God, who began the good work, right, in justification, um, that God, who is continuing the work through his Holy Spirit, through sanctification, will bring that work to completion when we are glorified. And so here's, here's, what, here's what I want to leave you with, right? That means that right now, for those who are in Christ, God looks at us and he sees us as if we've lived our lives like Jesus would have lived them if he were in our shoes. But I get it. Like when we look in the mirror, that's not what we see, right? When, when I look in the mirror, I'm like, I don't sit there and think that's what Jesus would look like. I see us, I see someone who still struggles. I see someone who's a, a work in progress, right? So, so the way that God sees me is different than the way I see myself. I admit that. The way that God sees me is different than my friends, my family, my coworkers, my neighbors. It's, it, it's different. Like they see me differently than God sees me. They don't see me perfect. But one day when God's work in me is complete, I will see myself as God has seen me all along. And that is true of you as well. The way that God sees you internally the way that God sees you for all eternity, eternally, um, will one day be the way that you see yourself when you are glorified. All right, so these letters really drive home some beautiful truths that we could um, systematically call justification, sanctification, and glorification. But these are beautiful gospel truths of how the gospel not only has saved us, 
<clears throat> past tense, not only is the gospel, not only is the gospel saving us present tense, but how the gospel also will save us future tense. All right. Beautiful, beautiful truth to live into. All right. So next week, we're going to cover a couple of more of Paul's letters. We're flying through this stuff, but keep reading, keep digging in. We are on the home stretch. We are almost through the whole Bible. And if you're reading along, you're doing a great job. All right. So see you next week. <laughs>